I can hear you. Excellent. Yeah, I sounded like a robot on the uh, Google Hangouts. I don't know what was going on with that. Yeah, that is, you think Japan would have great technology, but the internet's actually really awful. Is, is that so? Uh, you guys just uh, make everything and just don't make it work? Is that how it goes? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I must say, when I moved here, I thought, you know, technology was going to be outstanding. It's actually really antiquated. So let's uh, run all the way back. Um, we're with R.C. Sprague. You are an author. You are American, but you're in Japan. Um, give us a little bit of your background, buddy. Okay, so I was born in uh, Florence, Kentucky, just outside of Cincinnati is where I grew up. Huge uh, Reds and Bengals fan. And then I joined the Army after college. And that's how I ended up here working with the Japanese Ground Self-Defense Force. Excellent. And uh, the Reds, it's one of those, I'm from Cleveland. It's one of those, you, you never even think of the Reds from Cleveland. But then as soon as you go just like um, like 20 miles south, everybody's like, go Reds. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny, the 1970s still have a hangover on most of Ohio, it seems like. <laughs> it happens. So, uh, what got, what took you to the Army? Was, just, was that a family thing? Was it just something that you wanted to do? Yeah, my dad and grandpa had been in the Army, and I always wanted to uh, be a pilot. So, I actually fly helicopters when I'm not doing this kind of job. I'm a Black Hawk pilot. That's awesome. How, how long uh, does that take to, um, you know, get trained and be able to fly a helicopter? So it's about a 12 to 18 month process, depending on when the courses start. There's about seven, seven or eight different courses you have to go through in order to be a pilot. Interesting. Um, and um, when did you when did you go into the army? How long ago is that? So I started in the army at uh, 22 officially. I did ROTC in college for the four years I was there. So I've been in the army for almost eight years. Gotcha. And uh, are you're still enlisted in the army? Is that right? Yes, yeah, so I'm still an active duty officer. Yes. Um, and you told me before that you were in Afghanistan, you're in Japan now, um, anywhere else that you've gone with the Army? So mostly just all over the states. I mean, I was stationed in uh, New York for a while, Alabama, so I've been to, you know, New York City, Boston, beautiful areas there, St. Augustine, Savannah, just a lot of different pretty historical places around the U.S. As far as other countries, it's mostly just, I've been to Canada before as well, to Japan, Afghanistan, and Canada. Gotcha. And flying a helicopter in different areas, I mean, you're going to get way better views than anybody else. In, Amer in, oh, in the U.S., where's the best place that you've ever flown over um, just for a view? Oh, the best place is actually from uh, Pensacola Beach all the way to Panama City Beach. You have to fly over the water about 50 feet to 100 feet off the water. It's just beautiful. You saw sharks, stingrays, all kinds of stuff. That's crazy. And uh, do what made you want to go with a helicopter over like an airplane? Just Was it just growing up you always loved helicopters? Well, helicopters can do something that airplanes can't. They can fly backwards. In, in, interesting idea there. I would never have thought of that one. So probably the most interesting thing I've ever done in a helicopter is, uh, so you've seen like a ballerina spin around, right? Mm -hmm. So you take a helicopter and you literally spin it down the runway. So you just stay on the runway and just spin all the way down. Are, are you um, off the ground or do you keep the, the yep. legs on the ground with that? You're about 10 feet off the ground, 10 to 12 feet off the ground. You just spin all the way down, called pirouette, all the way to the end of the runway. That, that's uh, quite the um, interesting way to fly a helicopter. Yeah, it's basically <laughs> a waste of taxpayer money, but it's fun. I mean, you got to have some bit of, I mean, <laughs> you could look at it a waste or you could look at it as a morale booster, right? You know, you got to exactly. have some fun. Precisely. If you can get shot at you, but might as well have some fun. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you said that you're in the Japanese Peace Corps, not Peace Corps, the, um, you, you, tra you train for natural disasters, is that right? Yeah, that's the biggest thing we do. So I work with a, in a bilateral coordination section. So I work in a building where the Americans are on one side, the Japanese are on the other, and we converge to discuss natural disaster relief. Like um, they had those big earthquakes up in Hokkaido in like October of last year. So we were ready to respond with any kind of U.S. support that they needed. And we worked with the U.S. aid in order to, you know, get any kind of State Department help that they need. Usually the Japanese are really good. I mean, when it comes to natural disasters, they've just, that's what they train for. That's what they prepare for. But we're always available in case they need additional assets. And and why, why does the U.S. Army do that? Uh, so there's actually also Navy personnel here, Marine Corps and Air Force. It's just there's four different sections of the Japanese self-defense force. You have a maritime defense force, an air defense force, a ground defense force, and then it's the ARDB, which is a rapid deployment brigade. So you have different versions. They all team up with the different military sections of the U.S. Gotcha. And as a helicopter pilot, um, 
what are you doing there? Are you just kind of telling them the best evacuation routes or are you allowed to say any of these things? <laughs> so what I mostly do is a little bit outside of my normal realm as far as um, I don't do as much about helicopters. I'm more doing bilateral work to get to coordinate, let them know what can the U.S. bring to help them out? What functions are we able to provide and how quickly we can provide them? Gotcha. And um, you said there was a, a um, earthquake in October. You were there for that? How, how was that for you? So I was not actually in Hokkaido when that happened, but I have experienced uh, three earthquakes here in the Tokyo area. And uh, what magnitudes were those? Big ones, little uh, ones? Fairly small, actually. I mean, it's funny, you'll be sitting there, like two of them have happened in my office and one's happened at home. And the ones in the office, you're sitting there typing and all of a sudden your desk starts to move and you think it's just your buddy sitting next to you pushing on your desk a little bit. And then you look around and everybody else's desk is shaking and go, oh, I guess it's an earthquake. Nice. Yeah, the funniest and, uh, one, so the one what? at home happened and I was sitting with my wife and she started to think I was kicking the couch. She, this is the first one she had experienced. She's like, stop kicking the couch. I'm like, I'm not kicking it. It's an earthquake. <laughs> nice. Is it uh, just you and your wife? You guys have any kids? So we have uh, three daughters. Gotcha. And uh, they travel with you everywhere that you go? Uh, they travel with me when we go for like vacation, but the ones I do for work, they haven't had a chance to go to. They're all do really small. Do you envision the daughters also flying helicopters at some point? I don't know. I said my oldest one's six, and she goes back and forth between wanting to work in the medical field like her mom, or work as be a helicopter pilot, or be a teacher, or be something. You know, six-year-olds go all over the place. Right. I mean, as long as they want to do something, that's better than the kids that just want to be destructive or do nothing, right? Exactly. And uh, as somebody that's a father and um, a, a established, um, uh, what am I looking for? Author, author is the word I'm looking for. What, what type of things do you do to encourage your kids to read or write or anything like that? So the biggest thing, I said, my oldest is just learning to read right now. So just reading to them every day is something I've tried to do since they were babies. You know, read them a bedtime story, try to help her work out reading every day, just simple books. She's very, my oldest is very creative. She draws really well. My middle child's still a little bit younger than my baby is really just a baby. She's like 17 months. So <laughs> just try to get them to, you know, play music, dance, and try to draw as best they can. Just trying to get all those creative juices going, it oh, sounds like. Just got to encourage the creativity. And uh, being, having kids in a, in a foreign country, you, you obviously speak English. What, uh, how are they doing linguistically? Are you going, teaching them a little bit of everything? So my one that's in kindergarten, they learned both Japanese, Spanish, and English in the school she's in. So hopefully she's retaining more than I am of the Japanese. I really struggle, and I can say the basics, konnichiwa, konbowa, different stuff like that. But when it comes to a conversation, I usually have to rely on my interpreters. But I feel like they're getting a really good exposure to the culture. Absolutely, and and being so young, they're able to soak up the the American culture at home, and then you know not only. That's great to know that they're also getting the Spanish. I mean, we barely do Spanish over here in, in Cleveland. <laughs> yes, I and, wish we had done more Spanish when I was a kid. Yeah, I, I did it in high school, and I, I thought it was just the dumbest thing ever. And, you know, as soon as you graduate and you get a job in the kitchen or just go out in real life, you're like, I really should have paid attention and, and learned <laughs> <Exactly>. that. <laughs> I wish I had paid more attention to Spanish as well. And what's it like being somebody that doesn't really speak the language? You said that, like, I'm guessing your job provides you an interpreter, but when you're out walking about just as a civilian, um, is that difficult not knowing the language? I mean, they don't even write at all similar over there. So uh, it's not too bad. Most of the places around, like, the say of Englishmen, you know, you can easily just point and talk about what you want. A lot of people speak English. <clears throat> but the further away you go, like, out into the countryside, Japan's a very isolated country in a lot of ways, and they don't want to, I wouldn't say they don't like foreigners as much, but the further away you get from the mainstream cities, the less welcoming they are. And they're not rude most of the time, but they'll just politely ignore you, is what one of my friends like to say. They'll just kind of be like, eh, we'll avoid you and not make any kind of interaction. But it's not too bad most of the time. Gotcha. And as far as uh, food, I, I mean, I think of Japan, I think of sushi and things like that. Is there anything that you got there that you were like, wow, why do they do that like that in America? This is not at all authentic how we get it. Hibachi. There is no hibachi in Japan. That is an American creation of Japanese food. Because we were huge hibachi fans. My wife and I were like, this is going to be great. Lots of hibachi. And then we went over here and realized they don't really do hibachi. That's an American take on Japanese food. And the sushi is mostly sashimi, which is just thick pieces of fish, probably about eh, two inches long by about half an inch thick. And so it's just mostly sashimi on rice, which is good. I don't mind it. 
But the best right. foods you can have in Japan are ramen. Their ramen is awesome. And then a curry. Actually, Japanese curry is better than Indian curry, in my personal opinion. That's got to be easy to do, in my personal opinion. I hate Indian curry. It's one of the few foods that I just, I just can't do it. It just, it doesn't get past the tongue. I, actually, I don't, I think it's more past the nose. It's just such a strong, intense thing. It's, I don't know, I, I haven't got into it yet, but I'll have to give this Japanese one a shot, I guess. Yeah, it's more like a brown gravy, almost. It's like a okay. brown gravy with spice. <clears throat> and, and on the topic of food, is there anything from back home that you just really wish that you could get that you just cannot get in Japan? Oh, there's all kinds of stuff. My wife's big one would be Chick-fil-A. She's a huge Chick-fil-A person, and there's not one to be found. As far as American restaurants, though, I mean, there's a Chili's on one of the military bases. You can get McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, KFC. So you can get a lot of different American-style foods. Uh, the pizza is lacking as well. There's no really great pizza restaurants here, as far as you know, like local little diners. I bet Cleveland has a bunch of good ones. But yeah, there's local pizza is lacking. <clears throat> That makes sense, but uh, there's there no like um, Pizza Hut or the, it sounds like you have every other chain. Why don't they have the pizza chains for you guys? Well, they have a Pizza Hut, but I'm not a Pizza Hut fan. I like the I, local. Yeah, Pizza Hut's uh, one of the like the last case scenario in my personal opinion. It's like ninety percent grease and like ten percent taste. Exactly. I said though when I was in New York, there was a great little local place called Cam's, and they had New York style pizzas, even though we weren't downtown, you know, Manhattan or anything. So yeah, we really miss that kind of pizza. <clears throat> Yeah, I, I like just about every type of pizza except uh, thin crust. I can't really do the thin crust. It has to have like some sort of doughy bit, bit to it. Yeah, you wouldn't like Japanese pizza then because it's mostly cracker type crust with a little bit of a lot of tomato sauce and just a tiny bit of toppings. Yeah, I, I, I'll stick to the American pizza. Then <laughs> <laughs> um, you said that uh, tech wasn't. Um, I mean, the internet and stuff like that wasn't really going there. Is is that um, is that a governmental thing, or why do you think that um, internet-wise is, isn't really with it? I'm really not sure. I mean, it's you know, when you think Japan, you think very technologically advanced. Mm -hmm. I've spoken to a few of my friends that have lived both in Korea and Japan, and they say Korea is actually a technological place. Like you go everywhere in public has free Wi-Fi. Everything works really fast. But in Japan, it's it's like they pick one time and they just want to stay there. Like it's good enough. We'll just keep perfecting this good enough. <clears throat> yeah. So, so, like internet-wise, are are they at dial-up? Are they at broadband? Uh, I mean, you're clearly got a little bit of internet to be able to stream yourself. But how lagging is it there? Uh, it's it's been pretty bad. If you try to run lots of devices, so you know, you're watching Netflix on TV, you're trying to stream something on your computer or phone, it starts to get slow and grainy which to me is like, you know, about five to six years ago in the States. Gotcha. And uh, is internet and things like that, is that expensive in Japan? Is it, a, is it a premium luxury service? I'm assuming probably for people in Japan, it probably is a little bit more, but the military gives us a better deal. So it's about a hundred bucks a month, so not too bad. And then the phone service, I actually still have Sprint because Sprint is owned by a Japanese company, SoftBank. So I could bring my Sprint phones to Japan and just pay five extra bu bucks a month. That's amazing that work there. I, I, I've known so many people with Sprint, and if you're if you're not in like right by their tower where we live, it just does not work at all. <laughs> yeah. It's great here. SoftMax the biggest provider in Japan, so Sprint's mm -hmm. terrible in the states, but great in Japan. Good to know. Good to know. So if I if I ever go to Japan, I should just go get a Sprint phone for like a month. Oh yeah, like I said, five bucks a month, and you get all the same services, unlimited everything. It's great. That is great. And um, as far as uh, technological things, I always like to find out, like in, when I talk to the people in different countries, um, are there any like social media things or any just general cultural apps or websites that are really big in Japan that um, we might not know about over here? So the big one that I've had to use a lot is Line. I'm not sure if people use it in the States. I've never heard of it until I came to Japan, but it's basically just a way to where if you have different phones from different countries, you can still text, you can still talk, still video chat. And we use it a lot for work because the Japanese guys I work with don't have any kind of American numbers, obviously. Mm -hmm. So it's a good way to be able to text with them, chat with them, call them. So it works out pretty well. Gotcha. And that's, is that L-I-N-E line? Yep. Exactly as you think it would be. <laughs> just like a phone line. Who would have thought? <laughs> there, that's something funny actually you mentioned that because the Japanese are very straightforward. No matter what it is, they call it what it is. So, you know, we say the U.S. tries to call, you know, Operation something crazy, like Operation Overlord for D-Day. We like to come up with names. They'll literally call it Operation Earthquake Relief in Hokkaido. <laughs> Very blunt and straightforward. 
I mean, maybe they just like the key words. They just want to be right to it. Want everybody to search and be like, oh, we know what's happening. Yeah, exactly. Is, is it earthquakes that are the biggest worry over there? Or is it, to me, I also think of, you know, the big tsunamis and things like that. Or what's the biggest natural disaster worry over on the island? So earthquakes are the biggest, but tsunamis are usually associated with the earthquakes. If you look at um, the tectonic plates, the way they line up, a couple of them are just off the coast, basically, of Tokyo. So if there's a huge earthquake off in the ocean, that's going to cause a big tsunami. So it's when you go near the uh, coastline, there's always tsunami evacuation signs that tell you, you know, go this way. And Japan is such a weird country as well because they also have volcanoes. I mean, Mount Fuji, which I've climbed, which is awesome, is an active volcano. And if that explodes, there's going to be all kinds of problems. <laughs> how, how long does that take? How, how tall is Mount Fuji? So Mount Fuji is, okay, I think, was it 30... Almost 3,800 meters, somewhere around there. I should probably look at my stick behind it because that's what I climbed with to see if it has it on there. But uh, so it's a fairly tall. We went about four hours. We stayed the night because we were hoping to see the sunrise, but it ended up storming the rest of the day. So when we got up the next morning, we didn't get to see the sunrise, unfortunately. And um, you, you mentioned mountains, mountainous volcanoes. Big, I think big cities, flashy lights. What What is the country's predominantly is it more built up is it more rustic and jungly so it's um where i'm at in the kanto plain area so if you look at tokyo and then around the outskirts of tokyo is the kangawa or kanagawa prefecture which is yokohama and sagi mahara which is where i live and then if you go beyond that you start getting into the country and it actually kind of looks for where we are it looks almost midwestern like if you've driven around the cincinnati area like, you know, it's nice and forested, but it's not quite jungly. The further south you get, it gets a little bit more um, jungly, but most of it is just city centers. It kind of reminds me of the U.S. like that. You know, like you get around Cincinnati, it's built up, and then you get in between Cincinnati and Columbus, there's nothing. And then Columbus mm -hmm. built up, and then between Columbus and Cleveland, there's nothing. So it kind of does the same thing going like Tokyo, Osaka, um, Hiroshima, different places like that. If you're not right in the city, it's pretty, pretty sparse. And, uh, transportation wise what's what's the main how, how do you get around so when, i like we're not doing do -si dos on helicopters <laughs> so i like to drive just because that's the american in me i like to drive everywhere traffic is awful absolutely <laughs> awful but most people use the trains like there's a train station probably like a 10 minute walk from us so i mean sometimes we'll take the train but like i said i like to drive that's just me uh do they have like the the fast rails in japan or, is, or am i thinking somewhere else no, they do. They have a, what is it, a Shinkansen is what it's called. So if you're going like on a long trip from like Tokyo to Osaka or Tokyo to um, Sendai or somewhere like that, then you can get on those and it's almost a direct route as opposed to the local train, which stops like every two and a half to three minutes. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that's almost as bad as sitting in bad traffic if you got to stop every three minutes. <laughs> that, I mean, if you take a train at rush hour, prepared to be just sandwiched in. I mean, they're pushing people onto the trains to make sure that everybody can get I've on. Seen, I've seen that online. They have, like, sticks, and they, like, push people in there. Oh, I mean, you're literally, you can't move at all. So it's crazy. And uh, is, is that a cultural thing? I mean, like, if that was me, I'd be freaking out. Like, everybody there, they're just okay with it. Like, as many people as we can get. Let's go. Yeah, they, they don't worry about that in elevators. They don't worry about that on trains. They just like to pack in as much as they can. But like I said, everybody ignores each other. Nobody's talking. They just kind of quietly stand there. It's kind of funny. Yeah, and they don't like smiling, too. Isn't that true? Uh, the older generation really doesn't. The younger people, it's funny. You know, I've got a lot of people telling me, this is what Japan's like before you get there. You know, the people are very strict and very stringent. But the younger generation is much more... Um, Willing to express their emotions. Charge. Gotta get some, I got the notification, I have no battery. <laughs> <laughs> Put the charger on. So you said that, um, what is that like though? Be, being that like the, the the old cultures and the, the young cultures are so different, being the tourist, you kind of just, what's people like, pe people watching? Like, is it just a complete, how would you describe it? Well, it's always uh, funny because there's strange. Come from the U.S., you know, being a white guy, you no one looks at you, no one cares. But in Japan, I'm like a giant. <laughs> I look different. So all the little kids, like when I go to a play area, always look at me like, well, who are you? What are Especially with the beard because most Japanese guys don't have beards. Right. So they're just very confused by me. So I find it funny. And the older 
generations will usually not try to interact with you. But a lot of the younger people, especially since I have little kids and they have kids, we'll end up having conversations. And there's a lot of places you go, like we went to Tokyo Disney, and the people actually will come up to you because you speak English and they're trying to improve their English. <laughs> you become an ESL teacher while you're just trying to go and uh, see exactly. Mickey Mouse. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you mentioned Mickey Mouse and Disneyland. Uh, what other American culture type things are big over there? Anything? Uh, I'm trying to so, my, one of the funniest things you'll see is on T-shirts and signs. They try to put them in English, but it looks like they used a Google Translate app because it never quite makes sense. Like I was in an Academy Sports store here. And I was looking in the basketball section, and the shirt said, "Love basketball, hug court." And I was like, <laughs> "No idea what you're trying to say there, but okay." <laughs> lots of uh, random things. They, um, they have McDonald's is a big thing here. Like they have them everywhere. Of course, McDonald's is everywhere in the world. So, yeah, so that's just a Japanese thing. But baseball is huge in Japan. That that makes sense. I mean, a lot of the really big guys, you know, the real big stars in uh, the Major League Baseball over in America, you know. Uh, come from the Japan area, so is is it a, a different? What, have you been to like a baseball game in Japan? Is it a different feel than going to like the Reds game or anything like that? I've not had a chance to go yet. I'm hoping to go to one in like a month. But it's from what I've watched on TV, it's just a lot of a different culture. You know, American baseball is pretty laid back. Fans are pretty quiet for the most part, just enjoying the game. And Japanese baseball, they have cheering sections. So there's literally people, almost like a high school football game, with like milk jugs and drums and just screaming and shouting the whole game. And it's just a. And they also play the players. It's, it's a different way the players approach the game. You know, they they'd rather just not bring shame. Is the whole thing they're worried about. So if they tie, they're okay with it. A tie is totally fine in Japanese baseball. Gotcha. But but a loss is uh, they take that a little bit harder, maybe. Oh yeah, like you said, you, if if a pitcher hits a guy with the ball, he apologizes. <laughs> so there's no charge in the mound what fun is that i know the fighting is very frowned upon so it brings shame on everybody so they don't want to do that <laughs> uh what other sports are big in japan uh soccer is probably the next biggest sport a lot of kids play soccer it seems like they like to fast track so once you play a sport you kind of stick with that so soccer is a big one baseball is big basketball somewhat tennis is somewhat big and golf is probably the other big one I don't think I would have picked golf. I, I don't. I think golf wouldn't even made my list of places I'm thinking of in Japan. Uh, yeah, they're really big into it. It's an individual sport, so they're able to you know perfect it on their individual level. So it's something that they're big into. That makes sense. The the whole honor thing comes in of the team of yeah. one. Uh, what about um you know the stereotypical is is uh, any martial arts things real big over there? I, I see like the uh, swords and everything everywhere. Um, are they are they putting them to use? Well, I forgot. Sumo wrestling is a big thing. It's huge. They actually have big tournaments. Try, we tried to get tickets to a sumo competition. It's very expensive to go. Mm -hmm. So sumo wrestling is big. Uh, Aikido, which is like a self-defense technique, is big. They like to do uh, competitions with that. And other than that, I can't really think if they do any other. I bet there's probably more martial arts, but I'm not a very martial arts person, so I'm not 100% sure. <clears throat> right. Um, so let's move more into um, when you're not um, trying to save Japan and uh, doing crazy things in helicopters. It's still in my mind, I'm thinking of you guys being on like a boat, just doing all sorts of crazy things. Um, but let's move more into your writing. How long have you been uh, an author? How long have you been writing either amateur, amateur or professional? So I've really been writing most of my life. I mean, in fourth grade, I like to, I don't know if Ohio does it like Kentucky, but we had to do portfolios. So you actually had to sit down and write like five different stories and edit them and perfect them and then turn them into the state and they grade you. So no, that was the first time. We don't time. do anything like that. We just take stupid tests and uh, that's it. So that was probably the first time I really got into writing and then, you know, just continued to do it through middle school and high school but didn't take it too seriously. And it was actually during a flight school when I was in the Army. I was sitting in a class and this instructor was not a very nice guy. He's very boring and very dry. And an idea just popped into my head which ended up becoming my first novel. And I started scribbling it down, scribbling it down, probably for the whole hour and a half he was talking. And that ended up being my first novel once left the field of valor, which just debuted on March 14th. And um, what what made you, did it just kind of just flow naturally into a novel? Or I mean, how did you decide to make, go full novel instead of maybe just make it a short story or things like that? 
So with this man, my first book, it was actually a really terrible process. I had never done it before. So it took years. Like literally, I think I finished the rough draft in from 2012 to 2016, then had to figure out how to get edited. So I'm learning all the lessons, you know, this first time around. So I just, it, it kind of just kept reading on itself. You know, every time I'd finish a section, I was like, well, it's not done yet. And just kept building into 22 chapters. Mm -hmm. And uh, did you self-publish everything? I did for this one, yes. It's really hard to get an agent if they don't know you're going to be successful, if they don't see you have a platform built up already. Absolutely. And um, self-published, did you go through Amazon or how did you do it? I did. I went through uh, Amazon. It was very simple. You know, <clears throat> I hired an editor, which was actually one of my friend's wives who does book editing, and she did a great job. So got it edited. Then I just went in and did all the formatting. My boss actually did the cover art for it, which I got a copy right here in case some people have not seen the cover art. So he was, he's an artist, he has an art degree. So he did a really good job with the cover art. So it looks really professional. And then yeah, just got to put up on Amazon. Absolutely. And um, I see that you have the hard copies. Uh, you're getting those printed through Amazon too, right? Yes. Well, what was the turnaround time from the time that you uh, put in the author copies and they, they showed up? So for me to get them over here, it was about two and a half weeks. But if you buy one in the States, it's two days. Yeah, I, I was just wondering, I, I knew here it was like, boom, boom, boom. I wasn't sure if, you know, going overseas, if it kind of took maybe an extra day or two, or you, that's crazy, right. next two weeks. It's a little <laughs> bit of a lag. It kind of cracks me up. My mom likes to send me newspaper articles, you know, from the local newspapers. And I keep telling her, if it's a sports article, I've probably already read it. It's been two that's weeks old, but I've probably seen it by now. <laughs> and um, so tell us a little bit. Give us a quick synopsis um, what the book's all about. So this one is a historical fiction, and it deals with a lieutenant at the end of World War One, And basically, he's involved in a battle. He loses consciousness. He wakes up. He's buried alive. He gets out of that situation, and when he's in the hospital recovering, he ends up figuring out that he's acquired a death letter from a German soldier to the German soldier's lover. And he has to figure out what he wants to do. He has it translated into English because he doesn't read German. And after that, he has to figure out what to do with it. And the big things that are weighing on his mind is all of his soldiers were killed during the battle, so he feels very guilty. He's trying to figure out why he survived and they didn't. And he's also, the guy who he got the letter from, he actually ended up killing during the battle, and he figures that out through flashbacks and memories. So he has to decide whether he wants to deliver the letter, burn the letter, or just go home. Gotcha. That sounds like all sorts of uh, fun twists and uh, dramas all throughout there. Um, how'd you do all the research for it? just uh, kind of are you, are you naturally a history buff how did how did all that come about oh yeah i love history and i did a lot of research when i was at a fort record they have a huge military library there so i was able to go in and pull out the world war one books make sure the time period stuff was correct the cities that i named as far as where they were trying to leave from and come into and where the headquarters were were all accurate because with the historical fiction it's very important that you don't mess up any of the historical facts or somebody's going to definitely call you out on it Absolutely. The people that are really into that, like you said, they, they know the facts themselves. And I think some people that read historical fiction kind of are looking, kind of waiting for somebody to, to, to mess up so that they can be like, nope, that was 1862. Wrong, wrong year. <laughs> and somebody's trying to snipe you. That's why I kind of went to the end of the war as well. That way I couldn't get too many people to snipe me. <laughs> and how, how did you pick that time period? It just kind of, it felt right for the book. Like I said, I'm I know I've heard a lot of authors, you know, sit there and like, well, I got to plot it out. I got to figure out how everything's going to go. It just comes to me. I just, you know, an idea comes. I'm like, this would be the right time period for this book. And so I just felt that it was the best way to do it. And then uh, I've also, like, my next book is uh, Tales of a Toy Soldier. And it's a three-part series. The first part is called The Corpse. And that one just kind of popped to me. And it's about a young boy who is taken from his home and forced to fight in battles for a corrupt prince. Gotcha. So um, it definitely sounds like you don't take work home with you at all, so, at being that uh, in, in the Army and you go home and write about Army, huh? <laughs> yeah, I try. I'm uh, hoping to branch out soon. I also have a poetry book coming out in the next few months, so it's a little bit something different. That's completely different, going from killing everybody to poetry. <laughs> <laughs> and um, now that the book's out, um, are, are you looking to do any anywhere else other than um, Amazon? Are you looking to sell it um, on your own, or what are you looking for with that? So at this point, uh, with KDP, if you enroll in their direct program, you get a little bit more exposure, and that's for 90 days. So at least for the first 90 days, I'll look strictly on Amazon. And then depending how the sales go, if it's getting a lot of good return with that, I'll probably just stick with purely Amazon. But if it's 
not getting as well of returns as I'd like, I'll probably expand. And how are you um, driving people to Amazon? So I have a Facebook page, which is RC Sprague Writer. I also have my website, which is RC Sprague Writer at WordPress.com. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, I put ads up daily. I'm going out. I have a couple other author interviews. This is my only live streaming one right now, but I've had a few different uh, type interviews. Gotcha. Um, and I, I've looked at some of your social media. I've looked at your website and everything like that. Um, what do you think that in the future with your other books that you would do different from how, what you did before this book came out to kind of build the hype? Uh, probably try to get more interviews lined up beforehand and also get a few more reviews. I kind of released it at a weird time I realized afterwards and a lot of um, there's a lot of competitions and there are different self-published writer um, review sites that if you give them four to five months notice they can get you reviews prior to. So that'd mm -hmm. be something to do next time around. Yeah, the reviews are a real big thing for writers. and it's, it's amazing how hard it is to get people to just write two sentences about what they read, you know? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, even friends and family, you're like, just go write something about me, man. Just say something good. And you're like, where is it? <laughs> it's the best book you've ever written or read. Yeah, just, just, just fluff it up a little bit for me. But um, as, as reviews, you touched on a good thing, trying to get them before the book comes out. Um, what are you doing as far, far as like call to actions to try to say, um, hey, go review it? Are you doing anything specifically to get like the people's focus on reviews more so than reading and just uh, passing it along? So I'm working on I've, I've released my first newsletter through my website. And the next one that comes out, I'm going to also put in a section you know, with a review reminder. And there's going to be exclusive. So the other thing I'm trying to do with the newsletter and with my website is try to put an exclusive chapter to an upcoming book. So one of the next series I'm doing is also a Suburban Bootleggers, which is about a group of teenage boys who somehow get into the uh, business of running alcohol. So it should be an interesting <laughs> series. And I'm going to try to put it chapter by chapter in the newsletter. That would get more people involved and then post a link to reviews for my already published books. Absolutely. And something that I, I always like to recommend, um, you touched on a really good idea, Oppose opposed to just waiting and putting the book all out as one kind of giving people those individual little snippets or individual chapters i think is a great idea and something that i think that a lot of people should do um that aren't really doing it just because of the ease of how easy it is to get it set up is to do that same thing like you're doing in the written form but also start some sort of a podcast or video show or both to then kind of just eat every week at noon to know that you're coming on to you know even a live stream just to read off whatever it is that you wrote that week, just to kind of keep people interested and kind of adapt to all different formats because not all, everybody likes to read it. They might like to hear it. They might like to watch it. Um, just getting you into the realm of every way that people like to, to consume your content. Yeah, no, that's definitely a good idea. I should probably try to put out some kind of video. <laughs> uh, there'll be a bunch of videos about you after we get all this put together, hopefully. Um, just kind of. Um, that's and that's the nice thing of being that it's a podcast, but I also try to get everything on video so that way um, once everything's done, I could save everything and then take the different clips of you talking about different things and put different graphics up and be able to make clips so that you could help promote yourself along with every letting everybody else kind of get a quick little snippet of what could happen if you listen to the long form of the podcast or if we do it on Instagram live because Google Hangouts doesn't want to work. Always, always slam them when they don't work. I always give them props when they work great. But the, whatever reason, Google Hangouts, you failed today. <laughs> I used to do a Bengals podcast with my best friend, and we always lived, you know, geographically isolated from each other. So, yeah, Google sometimes didn't work for us, and it become really frustrating. Yeah, and it's one of those I'm so much more uh, comfortable with it being a screw-up when I'm trying to get to somebody in Japan. But, like, you're like, come on, I'm trying to get to somebody in Pennsylvania or Kentucky. Like, I could call, I could go there by the time oh, I got this thing to work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what made you stop that podcast? Just because you moved and it's harder to watch the Bengals games? Uh, it is. I don't get Bengals games until, like, three hours after they're done because I have the uh, NFL, whatever it is, not Sunday ticket, but the NFL Live or whatever. So I have to wait till all the 4 o'clock games are done. And that's not until like 10 o'clock in the morning. So by the time I get to work, somebody's already spoiled it for me. <laughs> that, that's kind of the same, too. I mean, there's one of those uh, we had the conversation earlier through, through the messages of uh, the, the difference of this is your 
Friday and my Thursday. You know, that's yeah. the crazy thing about the time changes of like, you think you got the time schedule down and you're like, oh, wait a minute, that's a whole different day. <laughs> yeah, when we first moved here, I tried to call back and I just called my parents. I ended up calling them when it was two o'clock in the morning their time. I was like, oh, that's totally wrong. Yeah, I, th I thought it was hard enough when my family moved out to Seattle, which is like a three hour difference to go all the yeah. way out to Japan and get those, we're what, six or eight hours or whatever craziness. Yeah, it's like it's 13 right now. 13 hours? That's ridiculous. Yeah, the craziest <laughs> thing that's happened to me with all my travels. So I was going to Hawaii for a conference. And I flew from Japan to Guam on a Sunday night, and it went into Monday. I didn't catch the flight out of Guam until 6 a.m. on Monday. Flew back to Hawaii and got there at 6 o'clock in the evening time on Sunday. So I literally flew back in time. You're you're not only a, uh, a breakdancing helicopter pilot, but also a time traveler. <laughs> And exactly. a writer. Is, is that how you're getting did you, Is that really how you did your fact checking? You just figured out how to go far enough back into the time zone and then you, are, you were yes. there? If I take this flight all the way around the world like a million times, I'll get there. Maybe if you just spin the helicopter around 15 times both ways and then maybe that go over the Bermuda Triangle, you'll find it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a little bit more about the book. Um, you said it is out now. People can find it on Amazon.com. Um, you mentioned about 12,000 other projects that you've got working, though. Um, when can people start seeing uh, more stuff coming from you? Is it going to be another year? Are you going to kind of just start put, pumping stuff out like crazy? What's your plan that way? So hopefully the poetry book I'm in the process of formatting right now. I will send it to a few agents to see if there's any interest. But once again, you got to wait until you're established from everything I've read. I'm in a lot of uh, different groups and forums and trying to figure out the, the craft from people who have done it before. So I'll either, I'll probably give it to around June. And if I haven't got a, anybody interested to cover it with an agent, then in June or July, I'll self-publish the poetry collection, which is the, the soul behind the mask. It has two different sections. One's more of a dark side poetry. One's more of a light side of poetry. And then my second novel, The Tales of the Toy Soldier, I have a rough draft. I actually have that one completed in a year. So it's a lot better <laughs> turnaround time than my first book. And I'm hoping to get that to my editor by June or July. Gotcha. Um with all those things um what makes you really want the publisher it's, it sounds like uh you know that you need to have a base before you get to the publisher but in my head if you do all that work to build the base you don't really need the publisher at that point uh to get into all the bookstores to get a lot of national publicity having an agent and then getting with one of the top five publishers is the best way to do that you're gotcha. gonna see more return on your investment as far as a, a self-published person making a lot of a headway it could take 10 to 15 years really to get up to the level where you know you're going to be on USA Today or Good Morning America yeah. or something like that. As opposed to if you have an, an agent in one of the top five publishing houses, you can get there in you know a couple months. Gotcha. So, so you're giving up a little bit of control, but you're also gaining quite a bit of time going that route. Exactly. And you still own the copyrights to it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and what part of the big publisher um, do you think that you could kind of do yourself until you get one? Uh, so like I said the editing is really easy. You just hire a freelance editor and pay them. Marketing is the biggest thing you need them for because as you've seen on Facebook, Twitter, all the different social medias, there's probably a million authors out there trying to push their product. Right. And people, if you get it pushed by a big name company, then people automatically go, oh, it's more legitimate. Mm hmm and uh, I think for the, for the small name people, though, that are like, like yourself, that are still trying to separate themselves from those million people, um, I think the biggest thing that a lot of authors um, on Instagram or Facebook, especially in the groups that um, I've, I've kind of peered into, it's the thing that they're doing is they're trying to sell a book, which is not actually what you're doing. You're trying to sell your personality, your story, and you have to make that personal connection with people. Um, opposed to just buy my book, buy my book. Because like you said, there's a million people with a book to buy, but why should we buy your book? Um, and I think that's where you have a, a big up on a lot of people is your backstory is so well-rounded and diverse that it's one of those like, opposed to if I were to write a, a historical fiction, you're like, oh, well, that's just a nerd that really likes to watch war movies and he put the book together. But like to know that it's put together by a guy that's flying helicopters and out doing things like that. I think if you could really stress that in your public persona, I think that would really step up. I mean, it's not going to get you 15 years of advances, but I think that will really help um, you as a brand. That's definitely a great idea. And I've been 
trying to do that more. You know, I just released a piece on my website. You know, it's a peek into my passion about baseball and how baseball and writing are connected and how that's important in my life. And, you know, just trying to give a little bit more of myself to the readers to try to draw them into, like we had talked about through the text before, you know, who I am as an author as opposed to just the product. Absolutely. And uh, like, like you said, and it's, it's the nice thing about being an author is you're running off of a name opposed to a business that's, you know, um, stuck to if you're Starbucks coffee, you have to stick with coffee. But being an author, a writer, they know that you're creative. So you're like you said, you're able to go write about baseball, you can write about war and kind of show yourself as a, a all around person and come out with a poetry book or things like that. Maybe um, do we have a parenting book in there coming to with all those girls? Oh, goodness. Maybe at some point, probably the, the strangest project that's, no, nah, I guess it's not really strange. I do write songs on the side as well I'm a, for country music. I'm still trying to find somebody to pick those up. It's also a very difficult uh, uh, industry to get into, especially mm -hmm. since I play an instrument. I just write lyrics. But that's probably the most random project. But maybe a parenting book at some point in the future. I'd see what my wife would have a lot of good input on that, too. <laughs> maybe, maybe a joint venture in the future for you, too. Yeah, possibly. Just sit down, sit down at the dinner table, laptop and laptop, and just put it all together. Yeah, so it's funny. We've, we've talked about doing a, our own personal blog because we are polar opposites as parents. We have very <laughs> different views. We have very different backgrounds. So when it comes to, you know, the big topics, we're usually divergent on it, but we find a good middle ground. Gotcha. I mean, and I think that's kind of how you make a good, well-rounded uh a kid and an adult in the future. If you show them one side and the other side, they find their own middle, right? I hope so. Yeah, that's what we keep banking on. <laughs> so, how much longer do you guys plan on being in Japan? Do you, are you, I presume you're coming back stateside eventually? So, right now, I'll be here till around two thousand twenty-one ish. Mm-hmm. You kind of just don't know exactly when you're going to go, just kind of get the ballpark? Yeah, I mean, it depends, you know, plus or minus a few months here and there, but more than likely in 2021 in the springtime sometime. Gotcha. And are you going back to uh, the Kentucky area, or are you going to go somewhere else? What's in the plans? Uh, I'm not sure yet. we got to figure out what our next career stage is, if, you know, where the Army sends us or if we want to do something else. It all just depends, and we got a little bit of time to think, so it's not too bad. And in the meantime, you have about 18 books to publish and 20 more to write. Exactly. There's always so much to do. <laughs> and uh, the, I think the only thing we really didn't touch on that I like to talk about writers I find really interesting is um, with the writing process, do you like to go just pen to paper? Or are you a computer all the way? Some people I've talked to just use napkins. What's the writing process? What do you, like tool-wise, what do you like to use? So everything electronic. I mean, if I'm out and about, I'll do it on my phone. You know, I have the um, Google Docs. So I'll just get on Google Docs real quick and put in whatever ideas I have or the couple paragraphs. Then I come home and I'll type it out. My last book, I was actually on a, an exercise. We are practicing, you know, for contingency operations in Japan. And I was on the night shift. And it was extremely dead on the night shift, not a lot going on. So in five days, I knocked out 30,000 words. Just That's... sitting typing on my computer. That's quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, that was nice to have that big break where not a whole lot was going on. Absolutely. I always find it funny. Uh, my, my stepdaughter comes in and I'm writing an article for the, my blog or something like that. And she's like, you've been typing for like two hours. How, wh how, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm at like 2,000 words or 3,000 words or whatever. And she's like, how many? You know, she gets like a half a page homework and thinks it's like the end of the world. You know, it's one of those like. No, when you have an idea, it just kind of flows out and you just got to go with it, you know, just write it all down before you forget it. That's why I always uh, tell people and they ask you, how do you write? And like, if you enjoy it, it's not a, it's not a challenge now for like college papers and stuff, but everything, <laughs> if you enjoy what you're doing, it's a good time. Yeah, that's how I feel about reading. Like I hated reading in school. I, I There's very few novels that I like, but if it's something that I want to learn about, I love to read it. I, I soak up a textbook way quicker than I go towards you know, like some sci-fi book or anything like that, or that's where I like, like the historical fiction type things where like, it's, it's a story, but at the same time, like you said, you put enough realism to it, enough things that could have actually happened to where it's kind of like, maybe this was learning, you know? Yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> and uh, when are, are all of these things turning into movies? Cause it sounds like you have the ambition <laughs> and all, all, all of the, everything else. Uh, if you're trying to get with the publishers to also, get into the music so then you could write the script write the sound 
contract and everything, right? That's what actually I had a guy that worked for me in my last job, and he had, he did uh, some minor acting for the History Channel and stuff, and he kept saying, when are you going to make it a screenplay? I said, I don't know. I've never written one, but I probably can at some point. Just, that's where, you know, get a good enough internet connect, connection for a little bit and just watch the videos on the screen, how to write the screenplay and make it adapt. You can do it. <laughs> Sounds like a good time to me. <laughs> um, so what tip as somebody that now has their book out, I know it's only been out for a week or so now, but for somebody else that is trying to get their book pu published by either a publisher or themselves, uh, what couple tidbits of advice do you have for other aspiring aspiring writers so the first thing is you know you got to try to build that platform as early as you can I've had a website for a couple years but I've not always been great about you know putting up constant content getting constant exposure so you have to do that if you want to build a following but the biggest piece of advice I would have is just never give up because persistence is the key to opportunity I like that quote that's gonna be a graphic by tomorrow I guarantee it oh, awesome. <laughs> Um, but with your website, I got to give my marketing po point of advice. Um, you, I really highly recommend getting your own domain and your own published hosting, opposed to going with the .wordpress site. Um, just for the simple ease of use to type it in, it's you know just a shorter URL. But then you're also going to get a lot more um, functionality that you could use with it. Um, if you were to get uh, a regular domain and just host a w WordPress, which you're familiar with, how to post the blogs. Get a premium theme it's going to cost you about 50 bucks and then once you install that you have a lot more seo backgrounds to where you could put in the different keywords and things like that to really help bring it up a lot more than you can with the traditional wordpress um, and it also helps you know give you a little bit more visual vibe like you said it helps stand out and give you that more professional big brand feel uh, for when you're going to the publishers or things like that so they see it and they're like oh he's already got a pretty website there's not much we can do for them other than just plaster that thing all over everywhere um it's one of those that it's a small enough investment and it seems like you're com competent enough with a computer that you could figure out how to install a theme and go through a couple doc documents to put it all together um within a if you could write thirty thousand words in a weekend shift you could have a brand new fully wet web designed thing in three or four days um just definitely something from the outside perspective uh, an investment in yourself that I think will definitely tenfold itself quickly. Um, and if you if you do decide to do that, just any questions, give me a call. Um, I'm happy to walk you through any of the little technical glitches through it. So that's definitely something I'm going to look into in the future because I think it's a good step forward. So it's something hopefully in the next few months I can get to. Yeah, and it's one of those, buy your domain, whatever domain, buy it even before you're ready, just so that way when you are ready to do it, that it's not taken. Um, I had that problem with somebody the other day. They're like, oh, it'll be there. And I'm like, all right, but it, it wasn't there a month later when they called me and they wanted to set up a website. I was like, we got to come up with a different name now. Um, so it's just one of those, keep that in mind. You already have everything. You're on all the channels. Just one of those. The more you do with video, the more you just push your personality. Your books, I think, are going to fly off the shelves. Um, and anything I could do marketing-wise, any advice, I'm more than happy to keep answering any questions that you got um, and help you in any way that I can. So just don't – don't. after the interview is over, it's not one of those, like, bye-bye, never talk to you again. Like, if, if there's anything you could do, you know, same Sue, like you're talking about, trying to get things with music made, um, at Jeremiah Craig. Um, he's on all of my stuff. Um, definitely somebody to reach out to and talk to um, about music. He's a folk singer, um, not really country, but more folk. Um, could definitely put you in touch with uh, people, I think, to maybe make those dreams happen. That'd be awesome. Now, I really appreciate all the help and the exposure here on the podcast. Yeah, we only got four people watching us right now. But like I said, once we take this and edit it up, um, I'll send you a whole bunch of links that, you know, like the parts where you're talking about uh, what the book's about or what you do and things like that um, I think would make really good sound bites so that when you're making your post you know just share the links out and then say hey look at me I was on a podcast you know doing promotion and uh, talking about all sorts of fun stuff um, it, it's amazing too the last three people that are on that were on the podcast once I went to Google their names after three days after posting their footage uh, it's funny you see you see the name you see the name you're like Colin can help Colin can help Colin can help Colin can help <laughs> Like, look at all my videos. I just killed their keyword. Blow us up. That's what we need, right? Absolutely. And same, too, um, don't be afraid of hashtags on all of the sites. That's one of the most organic ways to uh, really build up your, your following quickly is just 
Um, figure out those unique ones for you and put them on everything. Don't be, don't be afraid. It's one of those, a lot of people are hesitant to use hashtags because it seems really spammy and they can be if you just are like, beautiful, good, how are you? Like weird things that don't even apply to it. But, you know, to really get the figure, do some keyword research and keep putting those on different posts and see which ones really hit. Um, and then once different posts do hit, you know, kind of do that on your own analytics through there and you, you'll figure out the process sooner than later. And you're like, I really don't need the publisher. I think I got it. It's going to be RC Spray Publishing. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's something in the future coming. You don't know. There you go. You just get get a couple more editors in the books, and then you'll be you'll be running it with it. Yeah, just take on, go to bat with all the big boys, right? Absolutely. Um, how I like to end every interview is what I call the digital soapbox. You get up to one minute to say anything you want whether you want to plug the book, whether you want to just give some inspiration, however you want to leave the listeners, the watchers, um, go whenever you're ready. All right, so like I said, I do have a copy of it right here. This is Once Left the Field of Valor. It's available on Amazon. You get a paperback for $9.99, a digital edition for $2.99, or if you buy the paperback, you can get the digital for $0.99. Cents. Aside from that, I have to thank my wife for all of her support and love and my kids for putting up with Daddy, always having a million different projects, and to my Mom, Dad, and my sisters, and all my friends and family, thank you guys so much for your support. Colin, thank you for having me on here, and I really enjoyed it. Hope to do it again sometime. We will definitely do it again. Whenever you have a release ready or, you know, you're getting ready to make another marketing push, um, like I said, send me all the links. I'll be happy to share them out and uh, spread the word for you, buddy. Awesome. Thank you, Colin. All right. I'll talk to you later. Have a great night. You too. Or good, good day. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. You know how it is. <laughs> yeah, good morning, sir. Later. Bye. Yeah.